The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. unusual combination of two texts for you to be aware of today. First is in an Old Testament book I would say we rather rarely turn to, the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to read just one verse from Ezekiel 36, and then the other is a short passage too from a very familiar place, the book of Romans chapter 8. You can put your finger in there too. The reason I'm reading this Ezekiel text will become apparent, although it will seem odd to you uh, right away, I think. Ezekiel here has a passage where the people of Israel were being judged, and the Lord announced that he would judge them from about the middle of chapter 36 onwards, about verse 16. There's the, the statement of the Lord through the prophet that Israel has defied him, He says, their ways before me are like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. That may seem like kind of a shocking biblical reference, but the Lord is saying he has no use for the way these people have reacted towards him. And yet, there is the announcement in Ezekiel 36 that the Lord intends fully in the future to vindicate and see this people repent, and he will restore them and use them, and be glorified in them. And it is following that prediction of their restoration. Verse 33 says, Thus says the Lord, on the day I cleanse you from all your iniquities, uh, that he will do all these great things for them, that the land that has been desolate will become like the Garden of Eden, and so on. This is going to happen. And here's the one verse that I'm going to take us to in a few minutes. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do this for them, to increase their people like a flock. We're going to come back to that and consider it. But then this short passage in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Father, we ask that as we continue to consider this great matter of what prayer is and the how and the why of it, that while we are looking at mysteries, we ask that you will be glorified as we understand as much as the Word allows us to on this great subject. For Jesus' sake, amen. I'm sure the question has occurred to you at some time as a Christian believer, and maybe it even occurs to you frequently. 
The question is, if God is the all-sovereign creator and Lord and King of all things, whose mind is so vast and perfect that we cannot inform him of anything, and if his plans for human destiny formed in eternity past already embrace and know everything that will happen, if all that is true, why pray? Why pray? Up against a God who is eternal and whose plan and whose thinking and what we call his providence is eternally determined. Can prayer really change the mind of God? Strictly speaking, the answer to that is no. It cannot. Some of you might actually be shocked to hear that said. But if your concept of prayer is learning how to change the mind of God, I think you have another think coming. If we intend to inform God of something he doesn't know, that can't happen. If we assume we can arouse his sympathy by coming to him with heart-wrenching appeals that will move him, that can't happen. Or if we think our best rational arguments will somehow win the case and convince God to act against his predetermined plans. I say we have an unbiblical concept of God himself. Prayer is not about changing divine providence. Well, some of you are perhaps ready to pack your Bible and walk out because I've either just announced heresy or I've told you that prayer is no good for anything. But it is good for many things. In fact, while prayer never literally changes God's mind, the Scripture does say things like God repented what he was going to do, which is a human statement given from a human vantage point that we thought God was going to do one thing and now he's going to do something else. Even though we don't literally change the decrees of God eternally determine prayer does change events and change people. It definitely does. Now, some of you think I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I've said prayer cannot change God's eternally formed will or decrees, and yet it does change events and people, especially the person who's praying. Biblical revelation about the inner workings, workings, if we can call it that, of prayer, does absolutely contain a degree of mystery. But yet there are things we're given to understand by the Word. First of all, before I even come to this verse in Ezekiel, this single verse that I read for you, let's look at this problem for a minute and, and look at what we call an apparent paradox Paradox, meaning one thing seems to be true and the other thing seems to be equally true, but they clash. They don't seem to go together. The paradox is so because God is a sovereign, a ruler, a knower, a planner, a mover of all things. And he, has, he is eternal and he has made his plans. He doesn't simply make up plans as he goes along and says, oh, look what Fred's doing today. I, I guess I better 
set out a new plan because Fred needs me to change what I thought I was going to do. No, the Bible nowhere says such a thing ever happens. And yet it says that by prayer, God's people have influential engagement with the workings of God in human history. How can that be? Well, the sovereign God is omniscient. He knows all things in advance. He's all good and loving. He loves and cares for us as his objects of salvation and response to him as Christian disciples. He doesn't need to be cajoled. He doesn't need to strike a deal with us. You do this for me. I'll do this for you. Nor are his eternal plans simply some kind of cold decree, black and white things. He tells us in Romans that he's working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So his loving nature and his purposes worked out in us are benevolent. They're not merely an announcement of God says I'm going to do this whether anybody likes it or not. Scripture teaches us that people pray and things happened apparently in response to their prayer. Jesus prayed for Lazarus and he rose from from the dead. James chapter 5 has that famous passage telling us how Elijah prayed for rain to cease and it stopped for a long time and then he prayed again for rain to continue and it rained. And James 5.16 concludes, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. What's going on here? It seems like we've got a paradox. God has made eternal plans, but man and woman pray and things seem to happen in response. The Bible is declaring two things which are true, but in our limited minds don't seem to go together. It's kind of like when you learned in art class about perspective and somebody drew railroad tracks starting in the foreground and going all the way through the picture and disappearing in the horizon. And, you know, the railroad tracks were this far apart in the front of the picture, and then on the far horizon there were a dot. And it looked like they joined together, but that was kind of a mystery. How could they join together? The train wouldn't be able to stay on the tracks. There is a paradox here. There is some mystery here that you will never completely figure out. Just as you will not figure out the the mystery of what is called the Trinity, God in three persons, just as you will not figure out the divinity of Christ, who was also truly man, the virgin birth, numerous other mysteries in the Bible. There is an apparent paradox here, and yet there is a hidden sense of harmony. We pray, and it affects things, and yet God has determined what he will do. So secondly, I want to look at this issue of hidden harmony, and we'll get now to that passage in Ezekiel. There is a hidden harmony in this, that prayer appears to release blessing which God already has in store for us, bringing our will into conformity with his own. I read that verse of Ezekiel thirty-six, thirty-seven, and it seems like nothing very momentous, not like a single text that you would bring out and uh, say this is a main text for today. Thus says the Lord God, these things I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them in order to increase their people like a flock. God had announced, if you want to read that passage again on your own, 
rich things that he would do to reestablish Israel from their sinful state, their, their ruined state as a nation where all other nations looked on them and mocked them. The Lord God said, I'm going to make you new. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to make you a blessing among the nations of the earth. But I'm going to expect you to ask me to do this before I do it. I think there's a great key in that verse to the hidden harmony of prayer and divine providence. When we pray, we're doing things in obedience to God. He wants us to pray. He wants us to commune with Him. He wants us to ask Him, what are you doing, Lord? Help me to understand. Give me guidance. Give me wisdom at at this point in the history of the world where I'm living. And the Lord says, this is great. I'm going to do some great things. But I want you first to be in a subservient position, bowing before me and asking me to work. Because then you will see and understand who it is that is doing the great things. And we can believe that God ordains not only the end goals of events in providence, but he even ordains the means of reaching those goals. And one of the means is prayer. The prayer of his people. That his people are on his side and cooperating with him. There's a similar passage to the Ezekiel passage in another fairly minor prophet, Zechariah 13. There, in a similar way, the Lord announces about his people, I will bring one-third of them through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. You see, what God was going to do for his people included them calling on his name. He knew what he was going to do, but one of the means by which it was going to be achieved is his people would pray, and he would unlock the pent-up blessings of heaven. Here's a God who's all-sovereign. He's a king who cannot be challenged. He is a Lord and God who knows history from centuries past to centuries forward, and he can accomplish anything he chooses to do without our help. Nevertheless, I always love the word nevertheless. It applies many times in theological things. God is all that. Nevertheless, he chooses to have the prayers of his saints as a major tool in his workshop of history and human events. And these two things, divine sovereignty and prayer, are not ultimately in conflict. It's just that we cannot always see that lack of conflict. An American pastor is Presbyterian, actually, with a primary ministry in New Orleans during the Civil War and after the Civil War, B.M. Palmer. is not well known to you, I don't think, but in some ways he was everything in America that Charles Spurgeon was in England, one of the most eloquent preachers of the mid-19th century. B.M. Palmer wrote a great book about prayer, which unfortunately, uh, don't write down his name and say, I'm going to go get that book because it's long out of print, but I have it, and I've found it possibly the best thing I own on the subject of prayer. B.M. Palmer said this about prayer. He said, prayer is the human agency that blends with divine providence to produce many earthly events. 
Yet, he said, we are unable to trace exactly where and how these two currents blend together. All we know is that at the intersecting of these two threads, the web of our history is being woven. If man is in any sense to be considered a co-worker with God, Palmer said, he must pray. But yet, even then, our best prayers do not let us sit at the head of the council table of Almighty God as though we were his equal. God plans in advance to use our prayers. One writer says, a little bit very common, down, common sense kind of illustration, he said, God uses our prayers in the way a baker might break two eggs and fold them into a bowl for mixing to bake a cake. The eggs disappear into the batter. And when the cake comes out of the oven, they're still there, but they are indistinguishable from the cake. I don't know whether that helps you or not, but it's certainly a very down-to-earth way of talking about prayer being blended with the providence of God. And I gave you in your bulletin today the words of B.M. Palmer for your reflection before the service that I think summarize as well as I know how. I'll read it for you. It's there at the beginning of the service bulletin. Palmer said, Prayer does not inform the deity of what he does not know, nor persuade him to act in some manner he is reluctant to do. In prayer, the will of the creature becomes coordinated with the lofty purposes and plans which the Most High has predetermined to perform. It may seem that we have moved God to change, but in prayer it is we who have moved into a holy concurrence with the mystery of the divine will. And so, thirdly, today we say from that Ezekiel verse, and we move on to Romans now, to those two verses, 26, 8, 26, and 27, that in the act of prayer, God is drawing us closer to the designs of his own will. We often start out in prayer very far from God's designs, praying for something that maybe is even very foolish or selfish or completely wrong, that if it, if it came to us as we ask for it, it would be a bad thing. But in the act of praying, God is drawing us ever closer to see, to realize, and to claim the designs of his own will. And so Romans says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't even know what to pray for. And you think, perhaps you think otherwise. You think, I know what's best for me. I know what God needs to do. I would say, bow your proud spirit and believe that you don't know, in many cases, what to pray for, what would be best. You know what you think might be best, but maybe it isn't. But the Spirit intercedes with us with groans that cannot express, interpreting God's will to us and interpreting our prayers to God. When we pray, Lord, may your will be done, we usually don't know what that will is. And prayer is a way of finding out. And the Spirit is even agonizing with us until we would be brought into harmony with God's desires and God's plans. Here's an illustration that's very simple, but it's always helped me in thinking about prayer. I don't even know if any of the great ocean liners are really uh, doing their transatlantic thing anymore today, but I know that 
Certainly one of the last of them, or most recent of them, was the Queen Elizabeth II. Now let's suppose that the tremendous ocean liner, Queen Elizabeth II, was going to uh, stop at a city along the American coastline that was not one of the major ports for ocean liners. But in that city, there were, say, 20 passengers who had paid, and, and the, the, the shipping line agreed to pick them up. I don't even have an example city in mind. But the harbor of that city was not deep enough for a huge ship like the QE2 with her deep hull to go all the way into the harbor. So the ocean liner had to anchor five miles outside the city and someone from the, the cruise line would bring people to the Queen Elizabeth II and a motor launch, let's say a 60-foot motor launch, which is a tiny ship indeed compared to the Queen Elizabeth II. So here comes the motor launch with its 20 passengers who need to get on the ocean liner, and they come out the five or six miles to deeper water where the ocean liner is anchored. And the ocean line crew throws down their lines to the motor launch, and the lines are pulled upon, and the two ships come together. They come alongside one another. Here's the profound question I'm asking. Which ship moved? in order for them to be alongside one another and passengers to pass back and forth. Did the ocean liner move? Do you really think the folks on the little 60-foot launch pulled on their lines and the Queen Elizabeth II did all the moving to come to them? Why, the simple laws of physics say such a thing's not possible. The muscle power of a dozen or so sailors would would produce an action, but the action would be to move the motor launch alongside the QE2, wouldn't it? Anybody would tell you that. I want to say to you, that's what we're doing a lot of the time in prayer. We are not pulling God into alignment with our desires until He submits to do what we ask Him to do or bargain with Him to do. And I really think there are serious-minded Christians who think that's what prayer is. You propose something, you have a plea or a petition, and you go to God and either you wear Him down or you say it long enough or something, and God finally says, remember that persistent widow we talked about a week ago? You wear Him out and He says, oh, all right, I'll give in, I'll do what you want. That is not prayer in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, the text we considered the other week denies that that is prayer. If a sinful judge will do this, how much differently will your heavenly Father behave, that text said. Are we pulling God into alignment with our desires until He submits? Are we saying, shape up, God. Get yourself in line with my requests. I would hope you would say, no, of course we're not saying that or expecting that. We are drawing alongside our Heavenly Father and our King so that we become aligned with His purposes and in conformity to them. Just like that small motor launch being pulled alongside the Queen Elizabeth II so the passengers could move back and forth. And we looked at, at what happened in response to prayer and we said, Oh, look at that. Let me tell you about how God finally got his act together and did what I asked him to. Would you say that as a Christian to anybody? 
I certainly hope not. No. But you would say, oh my, you know, I was praying this and look what happened. God responded to what I asked. Well, the biblical definition is you finally began to ask for what God was prepared and planned all along to do. He would say, I was just waiting for you to ask me because that was my best blessing that I had on reserve for you and wanted to open it up before you. Here's a true story. We could tell many like it. It's not so uh, unusual in and of itself, but it's a story that illustrates the mysterious harmony of believers' prayer and divine providence. In the 19th century, or I guess it was early 20th century, actually, there was a Scottish pastor, William Black, who was a pastor in the north of Scotland. Some missionaries came from Korea, which in that time was a country just opening up to the gospel, barely beginning to open up. Today, you may know, South Korea has hundreds of thousands of Christians. But then it was still a pioneer mission field. Well, these missionaries came and they told about the needs of Korea, and Pastor Black felt burdened about what he heard and and thought maybe he should go to Korea as a missionary. And he actually discussed this with some of his colleagues, and and they said, oh, no, not you, William. Why, you're a, a teacher at our seminary, and you're expert in teaching young men how to preach the gospel. We need you to to not go out to the mission field, but to teach preachers here today. Don't you think about going away? Well, in the next couple of years, the small voice of the Holy Spirit wouldn't leave William Black alone. He kept thinking about, I wonder if I need to go to Korea. And finally, he did, on an exploratory trip at least, to see what it would be that he might do there. And so he tells of going to Pusan, Korea, and being set up in a house, and he was about to go out and explore how he might possibly be useful to the Korean church and the missionary efforts there. And a knock came at his door just a few days after he arrived, and there were three Korean pastors. And their spokesman had a question. He said, would the new missionary please tell them when he would begin classes to teach the local pastors how to become better preachers? And he he said, there are dozens of lay preachers who have little formal training. They are beginning to know the Word of God. They can speak their own people's language, but they need to be instructed how to preach. Well, William Black said, well, what made them think he was the man who would do this? And they said, well, we began praying three years ago for God to send us someone with specific skills in preaching to teach our pastors. And we believe he sent you. And he asked a few more questions and found out that at the exact time he had been sensing God's push or pull towards Korea was the time when these pastors began praying for an instructor to come. God wanted that blessing for his Korean church, but he appointed the prayers of Korean pastors as a means by which to move a semi-reluctant Scottish pastor to the place where he could fulfill that need. Certainly, any Christian can tell similar stories. Places where we cannot understand how it is the goodwill of God was realized when finally we, we asked him 
for that which he was most willing to do. The infinite personal God freely resolves to bless believing people as he has already mapped out divine providence for us. He can work apart from prayer, and he often does, but he delights to work with prayer, having us lift our voices and our desires and our pleas to him, just as it was said in Ezekiel, I will have them ask for this, and then they will see it happen. Again, my opening question, does prayer literally change God's mind? There will be serious-minded Christians who will say, yes, of course it must. I say I cannot see how it ever did one time in the Scripture. It does not change God's eternal mind. But it does wonderfully and mysteriously align the people of God with the plans of God. No reasonable Christian should want to change God. You hear that? You are going to change God because you have a better idea of what God should be and how he should think and what he should do. You, whose every thought and plan and action is tainted with sin, are going to get God straightened out? Really? That is not what biblical prayer is about. But prayer does change events and people as seen from our viewpoint as God waits for us to claim and agree with and say amen to the great and mighty things he plans to do in this world. The British preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote this once. He said, If the royal Son of God, Jesus himself, had to ask his Father in prayer in order to receive something, You and I cannot expect to be exempted from this principle. God blessed Elijah by stopping rain and then by sending it again. But in both instances, Elijah had to ask. There are many things about prayer that we haven't touched this morning. I've only tried to give you a suggestion to the fact that there's a mysterious relation between our prayer and God's divine providential plans. And yet, what a great encouragement we have. Elijah stopped rain. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Great and mighty things were done when his people asked in faith and sought to bring their will in alignment with that of the Lord God himself. God stoops down to include our cries and our petitions within the instruments by which he governs this world. I don't understand that. Why should he do that? The only answer I can give you is, it pleases him. It pleases him. And we ought to smile with anything that would give God pleasure. So let us act on the amazing privilege given to us of cooperating our will with the eternal will of our Maker and Redeemer through prayer. Jesus said it, ask and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Let's pray. Father, I cannot say that having studied and thought these things through that I understand any better the inscrutable mystery at the center of your being. But yet, I see this wonderful thing 
that you want and desire and are pleased by us seeking out your will. Lord God, we cannot force your hand. We do not want to force your hand. But help us to be seekers and inquirers and pleaders in prayer that we might get closer and closer as our little boat comes alongside the ocean liner of your being and aligns itself with your wonderful eternal will. Encourage us. Give us faith to be bold and persevering as we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.